0: Mac Power Users, Episode 80, Spring Cleaning. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David.
1: Hey, Katie. Spring is in the air.
0: It is in the air, we've got pollen, and the grass is starting to become green again, and you know, we're getting outside again, and now it's time to cleanse.
1: Yes, it's time to clean up your Mac.
0: It is, and uh, you know, I must say, cleaning up your Mac is a lot easier than cleaning up real life stuff. If only it was that simple in real life. If only. (laughs) So that's what we're going to talk about in this episode is, you know, we tend to get a little cruft tied up in our Macs from time to time or or maybe you're looking ahead and thinking about Mountain Lion coming up sometime later this summer and you want to get your Mac running lean, clean and mean in preparation for Mountain Lion or, um, you know, it's just good to every once in a while, you know, stretch and clean and and get all the dust bunnies out of the corner. So uh, that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. And uh, David, is this something that you do regularly or do you just kind of wait until things build up to a crisis point and, and let it all go?
1: Uh, I generally try to keep things going. I mean, one of our sponsors is Daisy disc. I like using Daisy disc occasionally just to see what's happened. Like anybody, if you create a lot with your Mac, which I do, you tend to generate lots of files. I mean, I, do family videos, I write books, I do podcasts. So I've got lots of fun stuff I'm always doing on my Mac and that creates big data files and it's easy to lose track of those. And sometimes all of a sudden you realize you've got a bunch of stuff on your computer you really don't need. And with the age of SSD and the fact that, you know, our drives are a lot of times smaller than we're used to, you have to pay more attention now than you used to, I think.
0: Well, and you know, the OS upgrade cycle is different now, too, and Apple has told us that we can expect it to be different going forward. It used to be that every 18 months to two years, we'd all go stand in line at the Apple Store, get a shiny new CD, and come home and reinstall this on our Macs, and that would be a perfect opportunity to do this you know, nuke and pave procedure and wipe everything out and start from fresh and basically have a brand-new Mac with every brand-new operating system, but that's really not how it works anymore. Now with the Mac App Store... Apple really is just encouraging you to reinstall on top of what you've got. And after you do that a couple of times, it's, it's really easy to build up some craft.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, well, let's, let's talk about some of the options for spring cleaning. And if you just want to take the bulldoze approach to spring cleaning, which, you know, sometimes you just burn the house down and, and rebuild it from scratch. uh, You can do that. So, one of the options is to completely reinstall your operating from scr- system from scratch. And this is basically what I used to do when we would get these major system upgrades every 18 to 24 months. And I would reinstall the operating system, and I would make my applications earn a place back on my Mac. And I would find that, you know, a couple of weeks after the new OS install, there would be things on there that, you know, I I haven't used, and I didn't need them, and they wouldn't, you know...
1: They wouldn't Those make CDs the cut. would Just
0: be sitting in the corner, yeah.
1: Yeah, they, they, I almost yanked this from the outline because it kind of felt like saying, "Wow, my house is really dirty, so I'm going to blow it up."
0: Sounds you know, like a good idea. literally.
1: Just you know, load it with dynamite and pull the trigger. It, it's a lot of work, uh, and it's really kind of a, in my mind, it's kind of like a PC mentality. I know people that own PCs that every six months do this. They bring their their PC down to ground zero, reinstall Windows, and start over again. And it's like a day-long project. Um,
0: it's not that bad anymore with the Mac.
1: Yeah, it, I guess that's one thing in its favor. The Mac App Store, frankly, makes this a lot easier because you can install a lot of your software with a couple click boxes and you don't have to go digging for license codes. And, you know, using one password and some of these other tools makes it easier. I recently had to rebuild a computer. Um, I've been kind of goofing with Mountain Lion and, and Lion, and I decided to kind of go back to Lion for some stuff I was doing. So I rebuilt a Lion install, and it really only took me a couple hours in front of the TV once I had Lion installed um, to kind of get it where I needed it. But I have a lot of tweaks and Hazel rules and things like that. The only reason I could I could pull that off kind of on a whim is because I have two machines, and I've got another machine with all my scripts and everything on it. And Frankly, I do a lot of that with integration to Dropbox, where I keep those common files. But it's not, you know, something for the faint of heart. Still, in my opinion, and frankly, a lot of times I think it is an overreaction.
0: Yeah, I agree, and, that, and honestly, that's why I put that one of the first things in our outline. Because if you don't want to go that extreme, and I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that you do. There are a lot of other things that you can do, and we're going to talk about that later in this show. If you do decide that that's what you want to do, we've we've covered this process in great depth in some of our getting ready for shows. I think we talked about it first in our uh, getting ready for Snow Leopard and then our getting ready for Lion episode about the whole nuke and pave process and how you do that. So I don't know that we're going to cover it in great detail here. But a couple of things I specifically wanted to point out is if you are going to do that custom OS install, you probably want to customize it So that you're installing the base operating system only, you may or may not need to install some of the additional languages and the additional fonts and the X11 or developer tools that that come with a traditional install. So you may want to look at that.
1: Yeah, and in the name of all that is holy, run a super duper backup or a carbon copy cloner backup of your existing install before you do it and keep it for probably 60 days. because Yeah, I'd run a couple you're going to run into something when you do that nuke and pave, you're going to say, wow, where, where's that perfect script that I had, you know, or where's, you know, where is, where's is that list of hazel rules or there's going to be something you're going to bump into that you forgot about that is going to be very time intensive to recreate, which was sitting on your old computer. Right.
0: So, uh, you know, that's the nuke and pave reinstall from scratch option. I I don't know that it's the best option. It's certainly something that you can do it's something that I used to do every 18 months to, to, two years or so. But now, you know, honestly, David, it's really only something I do now when I get a new machine and that's, it's probably, well, that's probably every two years or so.
1: Yeah. And that, see, to me, that's a, a great time to kind of start clean is when you get a new machine. Right. So that's every two to three years. If you're a super nerd like us, maybe a little bit longer, if you're more rational, probably,
0: probably should be a little longer. Okay. Let's, let's talk about some specific applications that can be real, Uh, space hogs on your machine and you may or may not need.
1: Yeah, so now we're not going to blow up your house. We're just going to go through and clean out some drawers and closets.
0: Yeah, maybe the attic too.
1: Okay. So
0: GarageBand is a big culprit for this. Um, If you've installed GarageBand, the default install is going to come with all of these additional files that you may or may not need. So the first question is, Do you even need GarageBand? You know, a lot of people don't use GarageBand. Are you going to be editing a podcast? Are you going to be editing music? Are you going to be editing audio? You know, with the Mac App Store, it makes it very easy now to only install the apps that you actually need. We're just now getting into the Mac App Store and the iLife apps being on there. So chances are you probably either got the iLife apps included with, well, you probably did get them included with your computer, or you upgraded and you got them with the CD. But you may want to check the library application support folder because you'll probably find there's some very large files in there, including that whole learn-to-play library that Apple spent like hours and hours and hours talking about at a keynote and then never mentioned again. If they even updated that? Which is,
1: by the way, outstanding. My 10-year-old wanted to learn how to play guitar. We went to Target and bought her a $20 guitar, and she spent the afternoon in front of the uh, learn-to-play guitar series, and now she plays the guitar. I can't get over How good that is!
0: Really, yeah. but then did they ever update it with any more lessons? You
1: can you can buy more lessons. I don't know if they've updated more because I didn't see how many there were at the time. But it's really kind of remarkable, right? But the okay. uh, but if you if you're not interested in playing the guitar, why do you want gigabytes of video file on your computer, right? And, They're and to also be fair, got- uh, as the the stock install goes, they don't put all of them on. They put a couple, and then you download more as you get into it. But but. But the loops and the and the uh, instrument voicing are very large files as well, and that's the same way as I as I've recently reinstalled um, Lion. It put in a basic install of GarageBand. Then the first time you launch it, it asked me to download, I think, a couple two or three more gigabytes of files. So you're not going to get all of that stuff with a native install if you've never used GarageBand. But there will be a significant portion of data file in there that you can get rid of.
0: Right, if you don't use it, and again, th- that's the key is if you don't use it. The other thing is a lot of your applications are notorious for keeping lots and lots of backup files. David, you talked a little bit about this uh, last episode when we were talking about Hazel and creating a Hazel rule to prune them. Didn't you say your OmniFocus backup file had gotten gigabytes?
1: Yeah, it was, I don't remember how big it was, but it was multiple gigabytes big because I, I make OmniFocus backups all the time when I start it, when I close it, I think in a set period of time. So I was doing that, and I do it on each machine because I have two machines. I figure if it, if everything goes wrong on one machine, at least I 'll have a recent backup on the other but i I wasn't monitoring that and and Daisy Disc pointed that out for me. It had this huge piece of pie assigned to omnifocus backups, and so I just created a hazel rule that said if it 's I think over two weeks old, trash it, and that solved that problem. but there's a lot of apps that do that, so you want to take a look at that, and that's where you want to use a tool. Uh, To find that stuff for you, you're not going to realize it's there because a lot of time it's in like application support, blah, 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 something. And it's in folders that you're not necessarily going to be looking in very often. So you need kind of a, a disk search utility to sniff those out for you.
0: Yeah, and and you do want to be careful with this. You want to make sure that these are safe files to delete. So you may want to refer to the the help or the instructions, or even you know, drop the developer a line because in some cases they they may be making full backups every time they back up, or in some cases they may be making incremental backups. And if you delete older versions, you may not have a full copy of your backup. The safest way to probably manage something like this is if the application itself. As a mechanism for managing backups, and you can tell it to only keep so many megabytes worth of backups or to only keep the last so many backups. That's probably the best way to handle it if you can. Uh, If it's safe to delete individual backup files, then that's where you can come in with a rule like Hazel or a program like Hazel to manage those.
1: And, you know, I probably should have said this at the top of the show, but uh, getting obsessive about getting rid of extra data on your hard drive isn't necessarily healthy or right. Um, That's true. You know, if you want to go in and start really looking for stuff that, to delete, you know, be careful when you start getting into system files and application support files, because there'll be dragons there. I mean, if you don't, if, if you want to save, you know, one megabyte by deleting a file, but all of a sudden one of your key apps doesn't work anymore, you've just created a huge headache for yourself. And I think it used to be a lot more risky than it is now, frankly, because, you know, you can reinstall apps much easier now, and there's, there's other things you can do. But um, I know from experience that I've gone down that trap before. I did it with language files, language support files and font files once I got really smart back when I had the original MacBook Air uh, with, I think it was 80 gigabyte hard drive. And I was deleting language files, and I managed to screw things up monumentally. And mm-hmm. it took a, it took me like hours to get it sorted out.
0: Yeah, the language files can be very, very dangerous to delete. And I think some of those programs have gotten smarter about the way they delete them. But but you do need to be very careful. That's that's why I typically recommend just not installing them in the first place if you can avoid it.
1: Yeah, and I think the issue there is you want to look for the big offenders. I mean, uh, you know, you, your time has a certain value. And... You know, getting rid of a 8-gigabyte file makes a lot of sense. You know, looking down for 10-megabyte files, you know, just just get over it. Right. Unless there's a folder with 17,000 10-megabyte files, like my OmniFocus backup got to be, or something like that.
0: Yeah, then that makes more sense. Uh, another culprit can be iMovie. The latest version of iMovie saves all of these uh, iMovie projects until you delete them or until you archive them off. If you want to hang on to them because you think you may edit them again in the future, but you don't necessarily want to keep them on your main hard drive, there is a mechanism within iMovie that you can use to archive these projects off in their native iMovie format so that you can retain the ability to edit them and reopen them in iMovie, um, but just not have them on your main Mac hard drive.
1: This one so really that might
0: be something you want to look at as yeah, well. Yeah, and this
1: tip really goes at the moms and dads out there because, you know, uh, us with children, we are making videos of our kids, and we probably are, because we love our Macs, in iMovie making movies. And I I catch myself doing this all the time. I make these movies, and then I leave the iMovie project on my hard drive. And before I know it, I've got, you know, 40 gigabytes of iMovie data for movies that I've already finished and sent out to iTunes and I'm done with. And there's a part of me that wants to keep that original file because, you know, it's archival. And, you know, what if my children in 20 years want to go back and get the original footage because they don't like the way I cut it or something? And and then there's a part of me that realizes in 20 years, I'll be lucky if my kids will watch the movie that I did make. And they have no interest in going back and cutting and seeing these source files. And then I go through and purge that stuff out. And I feel a lot better afterwards.
0: Well, or maybe you you do something like you make a, a couple of movies throughout the course of the year, but every year you want to make a larger movie that signifies these are the events of the year. I mean, so that may be one reason that you want to keep these files for an extended period of time, but not necessarily on your hard drive. Yeah, so it does make sense to keep them for some time, but maybe just not forever.
1: Yeah, that's that's a possibility. It depends on the person. Internal SSD. I, I don't do that. I, I feel like for home movies that if you uh, make it, I think the sweet spot is like two minutes and (laughs) at five minutes you're pushing it over five minutes. You've gone from a fun experience to pain. (laughs) And, uh, and I feel that way with my own movies and I particularly feel that way with other people's movies. So (laughs) when we show our movies to other people, I always like them nice and short so people can just kind of get it, get the idea and move on. But that's just me. Right. Yeah.
0: And, David, you mentioned earlier about Dropbox and how Dropbox has made this process a lot easier for you. One of the things a lot of people don't realize is that although we like having Dropbox sync all of our data across all of our Macs, you may not necessarily need all of that data on every computer that you have Dropbox with. So for example, you and I have a shared Mac Power Users folder that I think has a couple of gigs worth of data in it because we're now up to 80 shows. So I have that syncing with my primary machine, my MacBook Air, but I also have a Mac Mini in the house that I'm in the process of of getting ready to put one of those those small sixty gigabyte uh, SSD drives in. All right, and I don't need that, that. You know, it's it's I don't need that data on that drive. So you can use Dropbox to selectively sync certain bits of data to certain computers.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can I mean, it has that feature now. Right. Yeah. Uh, you also but, another issue with Dropbox is the cache. Um, So Dropbox can develop a pretty large cache and sometimes it's worth it to go through and clear that out.
0: Right. So how do you find all of this stuff that's sitting on your computer? If you don't even know where to look in the first place,
1: that's easy. Daisy disc.
0: Yeah. So I guess that's probably a, a good point to bring us to our first sponsorship spot.
1: Yeah. So Daisy disc, we've talked about them a few times prior on the show. It's my favorite disk management application. And it is because they get it. You know, it is truly a Mac app. So it gives you these concentric circles. First, it analyzes your drive. And then it gives you these concentric circles that break down depending on your user file, your application support, the, you know, the various culprits on your Mac that are likely to have large bits of data in them. And in each circle, it makes a representation of different groups of data so just using your mouse and visually looking at this circle, you can see very quickly, you know, where the offenders are. And I started using it, I don't know, Was it a, as soon as they came on the Mac App Store, it was one of the first Mac App Store apps I bought. It was $20 then, it's $10 now. And I just think it's great. You know, they take care advantage of Lion, they've got the full screen, and it makes the process kind of fun for me. If, you know, managing a disk can be fun.
0: Yeah, you can go through and you can drill down and you can say, all right, I want to focus on my users folder. All right, a big chunk of that is this application is my library folder. Okay. What's in there? All right. A big chunk of that is this application support folder. What's in there? And then every, every circle you click on it, it drills down further and you can see exactly where you are. And then you can gather files if you want. Uh, to mark them for potential deletion and Daisy disc will let you know how you're coming and how much space you're saving. And then, you know, maybe go and research and see, yeah, is this a file that I really want to delete or is it not? But Daisy disc is the tool that you can use for finding where all of this extra cruft is on your Mac and getting rid of it.
1: We just had, when we recorded our last episode uh, on a hazel, we finished recording it. And as you and I were talking on the mic after the show, uh, oh, yeah. I was I was uploading it, getting ready to upload it to Dropbox because our r- original recordings are sometimes, you know, three to five gigabytes because we record lossless. And all of a sudden my computer gave me an error that there wasn't enough space on the drive. And that mm-hmm. caught me by complete surprise because I hadn't run daisy disk for maybe two or three weeks. And, and I, we
0: we could have run out very quickly. We could have run out of space recording.
1: Yeah. And it Suddenly, it a yeah, something went wrong, and I had done some iMovie stuff, and there were a couple problems where things went a little out of control, and I had some duplicated, very large files. And while we were on the phone, uh, I'm sorry, while we were on the mic after we recorded the show, I quickly opened Daisy Disk, found the culprits, deleted them right within the app because you can select them and delete them right within the app, and everything was honky dory again. So I could send you the file, but it's just a great app. It comes in so handy. We're dealing with these problems. We are definitely in the SSD world now. Apple is increasingly shipping Macs with these SSDs, and drive space is a concern again. So you need to get yourself a great tool to do it, and this is the one. So go check out Daisy Disk in the Mac App Store. We'll put a link in the show notes. And take care of your Mac.
0: Yeah, There's actually a link on our website already. It's oh, right is there on the corner, on the side with all yeah. of our sponsors. There. Always
1: there. Go check it out.
0: Uh, and thank you, Daisy Disk, uh, for your sponsorship of Mac Power Users. Yeah.
1: So, what about your mail folder? Mine's got like ten gigabytes in it now.
0: Yeah. You know, when I uh, was considering which iPad model to buy, this was a big consideration for me. Is mail uses up a lot of space, and with certain types of mail accounts, you can it will tell you, you know, how how much stuff do you actually want to download, how much do you want to keep in the server? But this was a problem with my Exchange account. Is that if you start to download a folder in Exchange, it's going to download everything. And I've got this one really big folder in Exchange that was just gigabytes and gigabytes of of mail. So how do you deal with this? Well, one is is that you can change the settings in Mail to limit the amount of mail that downloads on your folder, especially if you're using, um, you know, like a, a an IMAP protocol or some other type of mail protocol that allows you to keep the messages in the, on the server. Or you can uh, tell it not to download attachments if, you, if you're if you known to have large attachments. So that's one way that you can limit the amount of space that's dedicated to mail.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, attachments really are the problem because those things add up. I mean, the mail itself is just text and you can get a lot of email. It's not going to take up much space in your file. But when you start sharing large attachments with friends, uh, that stuff does add up. I have to say, I've always just had the attitude, I'm just going to keep it. Right. Even with if, my limited SSD drive, I'm okay with 10 gigabytes of mail because I use it every day. It's an important tool to me. Um, although attachments are a separate question as well, uh, you shouldn't really develop a workflow that you just depend on attachments for emails to find the files later.
0: I agree. If, if an attachment is important, it should be downloaded then and there. And one of the things that you can do with mail, there there are a couple of things you can do if you want to keep most of your mail one is you can archive off all mail. Now, on this particular machine, I've had every message I've ever sent or ever received since uh, since OS X ten came out. Since it was an OS X ten machine, so that was early two thousands. Yeah. Um, and that's you know that's that's getting into about like you about ten gigabytes or so of mail. Now, mail has a feature where you can archive messages within mail. Or one of the things that you can do is if you want to sort them or go through and sort by folder, you can go through and you can say group a bunch of mail by year. And within the mail app, you can select a group of mail and remove the attachments for them. So this this may be a risk, but if you're willing to take a leap, you know, let's say here we are sitting in 2012, you decide, you know, I want to save up some space in my mail archive. I'm willing to go ahead and say right now. Any email I received before, say, 2008, I don't need the attachments for anymore. I've either gotten them and done what I wanted to. So you could go through and grab all of your mail from 2008 and remove the attachments. Yeah. Now, that can be a problem. Do you really have them? Yeah. And I don't know. once again, but it's I, an option.
1: I, I think this is one of those dragon areas, you know, where there be dragons. Just be careful if you're going to start deleting attachments because – what you don't want to have happen is then get you know audited by the IRS or have somebody ask you for something very important from 2007 and realize you got rid of it just for the sake to recover two gigs on your hard drive.
0: Well, let me tell you what my solution is to that. Uh, Mail Steward.
1: Yeah. Mail Steward is great.
0: I, I picked up uh, Mail Steward off the Mac. It's now on the Mac App Store, although you, if you want some of the more advanced features like the scheduling and... Um, You can buy it from his website, but MailSteward will archive all of your email and all of its attachments in a separate database that I keep on my Drobo and it gets backed up in different places. So I have all of my mail, all of its attachments, all of the various accounts I've ever had archived into MailSteward. And so I feel comfortable keeping a leaner set of mail on my Mac. And I only go back the last couple of years on my Mac knowing that everything is in mail steward.
1: Uh, that's great and mail steward is a great solution for $20. There's another one in the Mac App Store called Email Archiver and I've been playing with that one lately and I'm not really okay. in a good enough position yet to recommend one or the other. That one's $10. I I think I'm going to write an article on this at some point cuz I want to go through and kind of really put them through their paces. But right. it's uh, there, there are other solutions other. Than- mail steward was always the only solution and now it seems like there's some other ones as well but these applications do exist and you know the task itself i don't think is that difficult you know take a copy of every email and attachment and archive it and keep an index so you can tell what you've already copied and what you haven't so i'm i'm curious to see what some of these other developers have done as well
0: apple mail itself has the ability to archive messages you can select a group of messages and, and create an archive from it and then move that archive somewhere else that you can always re-import back in.
1: Yeah, but as I, as, as I understand it, that's not a smart archive. It's not going to be indexed. You're not going to know. It's it not is not. Ind-
0: no, it's it's just a group of messages that if I ever think I may need a message from 2007 again, I can go back and re-import these.
1: Yeah, so you take kind of the, the approach of saying I'm going to pull everything off for a certain period. Whereas using Mail Steward or I believe Mail Archiver, you can selectively put things off and it's going to know the difference between what it's already received and what it hasn't. Um, so you can just routinely run it and it will go back and just add things that have added since that time. Right. And once so again, take a options. look at your overall disk size and decide if this is a problem. Now, a lot of people used to say how bad uh, the mail.app was at handling email when you've got a, a, file, a library size over a certain number of gigabytes. And I have never had that problem. I think maybe because back when that was a problem, my, my archive wasn't that large. And now that, right, pretty, yeah, now that it's pretty large, it seems like they've kind of sorted out the, the kinks because I searched the entire database very quickly. I agree. And we talked about that in the Mail Show, all the great things you can do. The advantage of having all this stuff installed is you can search all of these things very easily now in mail.app. And I guess this whole conversation is premised on the idea that you're using a local mail client, uh, specifically mail.app. If you're using something like Google Mail, um, your stuff is stored on their server.
0: And you don't even have to worry about it, but you're just relying on Google to store that for you.
1: Yeah. And we've talked about that probably enough. For a while.
0: <laughs> Google or somebody else.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so take a look at your mail and make some make some tough decisions. But this is another one where I, I recommend you don't have to go kill all that extra email unless you really, really are tight for space. And you know, another option is get a bigger drive. <laughs> you know, they exist. OWC makes very large SSDs that'll even go in a MacBook Air.
0: Yeah. They are coming down in price. It is a little more difficult if you have a MacBook Air. Yeah. Yeah. Still to crack that open and and replace it. Might well, might want to call a professional.
1: Now this next subject is near and dear to my heart because where I'm a little leery about clearing out mail, I'm very much interested in talking about iTunes cleanup.
0: There's a lot of cruft in iTunes that can I, I think that people can clean up. Yeah. So one option that we've talked about, and, and remember, we did a whole show on iTunes. Uh, it's been about a year or so ago. Maybe we'll, we'll throw a link to that in the show notes. And a lot has changed. We did a show on iTunes, and then re- more recently, we did a show on iTunes Match. And iTunes Match was that when we did our original iTunes show. So a lot of things have changed even since our iTunes Match, or our original iTunes show. iTunes Match was, I think, back in show sixty-six. Yeah. But iTunes and music. I mean, you've got you've got everything on iTunes. You've got music. You've got movies. You've got high def movies now. You've got TV shows. You've got apps, and apps now are getting very, very large. Uh, now that you've got you know the high uh, definition apps for the retina display, and some of these GPS apps and things that have all this data are, are gigabytes, if not larger.
1: Well, not only do you have apps on your hard drive, you have multiple copies of your apps. I mean, if you want to okay. find out a waste of space, go look in your apps folder. And look at all the prior versions of these iOS apps, and if they're games, prior very large versions of these iOS apps that are sitting on your drive.
0: Now, I think they have gotten a little bit better about that. It used to be very bad, but I'm sure you'll find some duplicates still. So, well, let's let's talk about some of the things you can do to to clean up iTunes. If you if you've got one of these small SSDs and you just want to get rid of iTunes on your drive altogether you could consider consolidating your music either to an alternative machine and using home sharing or to a network drive. Now, the problem with that is you're going to have to have access to that music or you could use a service like iTunes Match, but you're going to be a little more limited. You need a network connection.
1: Yeah, and we we talked about that. I I think the best way to do that and looking at it in a family environment where I am, you know, we've got four people live in my house and you know, my children, as they get older, are increasingly developing their own music tastes. And so we've got a an exploding iTunes library, and we have one central iMac in the house with a Drobo drive attached to it and Fireware 800. And the whole library is on the uh, the external drive, and that's the mother load.
0: Now, and- one of the problems here, I think, is going to be how do you make sure – and iTunes Match makes this easier – But how do you make sure pre-iTunes match, or if you don't have iTunes match, that you have everything on that Drobo?
1: Well, we just, you know, we, I've kind of drilled into them that if you buy something, that's the computer that you buy it on. Okay. And then there are some settings in iTunes where you can, you can force it to download uh, new apps and new, new music. And frankly, iTunes match does make it easier because now you know, we have increasingly fewer other Macs in our house because as the kids' Macs are failing, I've talked about this on the show too. We're kind of just letting them go, and we're not replacing them. And they're getting the hand-me-down iPads because that seems to be appropriate for what they're doing in their lives. The so we don't have a whole lot of other iTunes libraries in the house, but the ones we do have are just pulling down a a limited portion of the iTunes match. I mean, the iTunes match was at twenty dollars; so was totally worth it to me just to be it's able 25, to 25, but yeah. 25. It well, it's just either way, it's totally worth it to me because now on my computer, I just have a very limited amount of data. And, you know, once again, that kind of is treading on the stuff we talked about in the prior show, but uh, I'm very aggressive about smart playlists and playlists. And so once you have those developed, all that stuff syncs through iTunes match. So you can make a, a really portable version of your music off your master library. Um, so, I guess what that means for someone who wants to do some spring cleaning and assumes they don't have an extra iMac laying around the house, like Crazy Sparks does, um, you could do things like back up all of your music, your whole library, off to an external drive and have it accessible and, and, and you could access your drive from that... I'm sorry, let me back up. I'm getting confused. You can access your library from that ex- external drive. So you could always have your library on an external drive, like essentially I'm doing with the Drobo. Or if you've got a bunch of stuff in there that you don't really need that often, but you don't want to get rid of it, you could just archive it off or put it on a cold storage drive that's not even connected to your computer, but first have everything uploaded through iTunes Match, and then you can just selectively pull down what you want. Um, I do that upstairs. See, in my... Um, my kind of studio is a corner of my bedroom and I've got a 27 inch iMac in there which doubles as our television sort of I don't have a tv tuner connected to it but you know my wife and I'll watch a movie on it once in a while and it's a 256 gigabyte hard drive I'm not going to keep a bunch of movies on it but I do have an external drive in the room that I can just plug in and copy one of my favorite movies over from it when it's time to watch a movie does that make sense
0: no, it makes great sense,
1: and so to a certain extent, I've got the advantage of the ability to watch a movie on my iMac upstairs, but I don't have all of that data you know doing I've got like a gig a terabyte you know USB drive that costs me very little sitting in a drawer that I can just get any one of our movies on uh, alternatively, I could just plug into the master library downstairs and and copy a movie over to my computer when I wanted to do it, which um with our internet connection, our house might be just as easy, frankly, as getting out a hard drive and plugging it in.
0: The other thing you can do is, the, and we'll, we go much further into detail with this in the iTunes show, so I'll, I'll refer you to that, but you can use features built into iTunes like the Consolidate Library feature. If you've initially got a little bit of data here, a little bit of data there, some data on different hard drives, and you're not quite sure where those actual media files live, uh, iTunes has a feature that will allow you to consolidate that data to wherever your iTunes library is, or wherever it's supposed to be. Um, and you can also use the home sharing feature, which you can set up if you have multiple libraries or multiple sh- machines, to see and compare exactly which what data you have. So let's say, like David, you have uh, a master iMac that is supposed to have all the mo- the the uh, the library on it you can use home sharing from that master iMac to look at David's MacBook Air and say, click a box that says, show me all of the the things on this MacBook Air that are not on my master library and see if you happen to be missing anything. And if so, copy them over.
1: Yeah. Agreed. So. Uh, iTunes is really, you know, a ripe area to get rid of unnecessary bits of data. Um, uh, look through your software folders, your iOS software folders and backups Um, one of the things that your iTunes does all the time is it makes backups of your devices. And sometimes it makes multiple backups of your devices. I didn't look before we started the show, but if I, I go in here right now, you'll see that there are usually a lot more backups than you think.
0: And I guess one of the questions is in the age of iCloud, do you even need to keep local backups of your devices on your Mac? I'm a little nervous about this. I've decided that I'm going to keep at least one backup of both my iPhone and my iPad on my Mac at any given time. But I tell you, when I got my new iPad, I did the whole iCloud backup and restore, and it worked flawlessly. I would completely recommend that to somebody based on my experience. I just made sure that before I erased my old iPad that I hit the backup button and I had the most up-to-date backup and that I had everything in the iCloud backup, I wanted to backup, set to backup. It backed up to iCloud. My new iPad came. I I didn't even have my computer with me. I was at work when it arrived. My new iPad came. I connected it to the uh, Wi-Fi network at the office. I plugged in my uh, username and password. It said, do you want to restore this from an iCloud backup? I said, yes, please. And within... Five minutes, it had all of my settings, all of my information, and it was ready to use, and it began the process. It individually downloads the apps from the iTunes store. So that took about 45 minutes to an hour uh, on the Wi-Fi connection I had to download all of my apps. But that was it. Everything was ready to go.
1: That process works great. I mean, it's great. great. And switching iPhones or iPads or these devices, they they nailed that. Um, Okay, let's just go off topic for just a couple minutes. What do you think of the Retina display?
0: I like it. I like it a lot. I, I am looking for reasons to read on it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I I, mean, I just don't think all these people are saying, well, it's just an upgraded screen. It seems to me like it's a lot more than that. It's just, I'm, it's, I'm
0: loving Instapaper on the iPad. It's becoming my new favorite app on the iPad. It is I'm looking for reasons to pull things out of my RSS feed and put them into Instapaper so I can read them like a newspaper on my iPad.
1: It seems to me like it's a difference if you put a hamburger and then a Kobe steak next to it, and you say, well, it's just upgraded meat. It's, it's, really, <laughs> you know, it's, really, it's really nice. Uh, I'm, uh, in fact, I was at ABA Tech Show. I'm just getting home from it as we record the show. And there were people that would come up to me and start looking at the screen, and then they'd like literally run away. You know, they're like, I can't see that. <laughs> That's kryptonite <laughs> to me. I can't look at that. Right. Uh, now,
0: remember, I didn't have the iPad 2, which I know was no different screen than the iPad 1. So it was a it was a little more significant upgrade for me than it yeah. was, I think, for you because I didn't have the
1: two. And the speech to text is fantastic. I'm
0: guy. loving the speech to text. I'm loving it. in fact that makes me want to run out and buy an iPhone 4S for the speech to text.
1: Well, at this point I'd wait. But
0: we're so close now, I've got to wait, yeah.
1: I don't know how close we are, but I'd wait. Um
0: Well we're closer than we were when it first came out.
1: There you go. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> As we were the day after it came out.
1: I, I sat in the airport and dictated a 2000 word motion response on the speech to text worked great.
0: Now, now you must've had to click the button a few times.
1: Oh yeah. Because it, I, it only goes I, so yeah. long and then it, it does it, but that's okay. I'm kind of scatterbrained. It gives me a chance to collect my thoughts. Um, the, the only downside to it is I use my iPad so much as a brainstorming device. I'm usually looking at a mind map or an outline on my iPad as I dictate and um that doesn't work here because I was dictating into Byword, so I have to give some thought to that. But yeah, I'm, I'm very well, happy. to now you can
0: now you can look at your mind map on your iPad, and dictate into Byword on your iPhone.
1: I guess I could, I guess I could, but I, I really like doing it on the iPad, and I that's then
0: everybody in the airport would be staring at you, going, "What is wrong?". You
1: with You know what? That guy? I, I've been talking to myself since I was like seven, so it's okay. It now now okay. it's almost justifiable. So, and once in a while, I do have the mic turned on. Uh, so, but getting back to the subject, it, it, your backups that you put on your, your, your Mac, you find them in iTunes and the preferences and the devices pane, and it'll show you any backups. But like, if you've got a 64 gigabyte iPad, and you've packed it up, that's actually quite a bit of data. I mean, it's not going to put the full 64, it's going to put on however much data you've used, but Right.
0: Well, and it's not it's not going to duplicate over your movies and your music and things like that, because you've already got that, obviously, on your Mac. But yeah. your backup file is still probably going to be a couple of gigs.
1: And if you've got several of them, because sometimes it tends to make several, then you got an issue. Uh, I still do it, though. I make a backup of everything. And I just go in and, because I use the backups in the cloud, I just go in and I check to make sure I don't have any uh, old backups in the devices pane, and I delete any of the old ones. And then when you have it plugged in, uh, you see the device over on the devices uh, label on the left column in iTunes. If you right-click on it, it says back this up. So you can go ahead and back up right there. And once in a while, I still do it. And maybe at some point I'll be able to let go of that neuroses. But for the time being, I'm still doing at least one backup of all my devices.
0: Yeah, I agree. I am too. So. Uh, the other thing that we talked about in our iTunes show that – yeah, it doesn't hurt is, you'll be surprised if you haven't gone through your iTunes library in a while, just how many duplicates you have in that library that you may or may not need. Yeah. Just duplicate songs, duplicate movies. Um, there was a piece of software that came in the Macworld swag bag this year that I tried out. I think it's called, is it Toon Ranger? Did you get that? Toon Ranger. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to do a decent job.
1: Yeah, there's a bunch of these.
0: Uh, iTunes also, of course, has its own built-in mechanism for for dealing with duplicates, and your mileage may vary on that. Our our good friend um, Doug from Doug Scripts also has his own software, and I'm sure that is excellent because everything he does is excellent. But yep. I have not personally used it or TuneUp. I'm sorry, the software was TuneUp that I used.
1: Okay, but Tune Ranger is another one.
0: Tune Ranger is another one, but TuneUp is the one that I used.
1: I think Doug scripts for a third-party um, application is probably the best. He has one called Dupin that goes and finds right. duplicates. Um, however, if you don't want to spend any money on this, you're right. You know, iTunes does have a solution, and you just go to the uh, what is it? The I'm going to open iTunes really quick so I can get this right. I think you go to the file. It's menu the file
0: and menu, mm-hmm. and you
1: hit display duplicates. But it gets better if you hold down the Option key. When you go there, it says display exact duplicates. And when you do that, you it does a much better job of finding songs with the same time. And, you know, because, for instance, I, I like a lot of jazz. I have a lot of 50s jazz. Do you want to know how many people recorded Night in Tunisia? I mean, I probably have 15 recordings of Night in Tunisia, but they're all by different artists. But if you just say display duplicates, there's a good chance a bunch of those are going to be thought of as duplicates when they're truly not. If you have exact duplicates, it will find the various, you know, that I have three versions by Dizzy Gillespie that are the exact same length. And, you know, then I'll realize, okay, I can get rid of a couple of those. Right. And when I did the big iTunes match switch, I spent some time going through and really clearing that out. And we talked about that in the iTunes match show, which will be in the show notes, but that that's useful. Uh, But those are just music files, which again, aren't that big. I think the, the big files that you need to watch out for are the movie files and when you download movies, a lot of times you get both an HD and an SD version of them.
0: Yeah, you know, people, I'm going to get email for this. I can't tell the difference. Isn't think, that horrible? I mean, I've got a 42-inch plasma TV in my living room. I can't tell the difference between the HD and the SD version. Is that just because I have really bad eyesight?
1: Well, I'm, I, I, first of all, I don't think you're a television geek. You know, it's not, I'm it's not, not a big I'm deal not. to you. Like, you just got done saying how great the iPad screen I did. is.
0: Didn't I? Yeah. And then
1: some people will say, I can't tell the difference between the two. And I look at them like they're nuts. And I'm sure people would look at you like you're nuts because you can't tell the difference. I think another point is that a bigger, the bigger the TV, the more you can tell.
0: That's and 42
1: perfect. inches is kind of in that gray area, I guess. I can definitely tell. So
0: what you're saying is I need to go buy a bigger TV.
1: Oh maybe you know but I, I can tell on a 42 inch TV high def but when you get like a 20 inch TV or something because they do have like very small high def TVs to me oh, it's Oh don't not get me wrong I def-
0: I definitely can tell the difference between high def and, and standard def content I mean in terms of of, of shows that I'm watching once, I probably shouldn't say I can't tell the difference. In terms of shows that I'm watching once because I missed them on the TiVo or a movie that I'm I'm renting for, you know, to watch once for two hours and then never going to keep again. To me, I don't I don't think it's worth the the extra buck or whatever to get the high def version. Maybe okay. that's what I should say.
1: So what you're saying is you don't care.
0: What I'm saying is, oh, never mind.
1: I'm going to get email <laughs> either way.
0: Forget I said that's anything.
1: Katie at MacPowerUsers.com. Yes, go ahead. Um, Well, maybe I'm just saying I'm cheap. My point being, when you buy them, uh, you sometimes get both the HD and the standard definition version. And if you want the HD version, but you don't care about the SD, you can go ahead and delete that. And movie files are usually SD versions, usually between one and two gigs, and HD, you know, four to six gigs, I guess, is probably a fair estimate. So, whichever one of those you don't want, you could archive it, move it off your Mac, or just delete it, and that will save you some space. And it's a good way to kind of clean things up.
0: I agree. There's If you're going to download, if you are one of these HD, hmm, if you are one of those people who can't tell the difference between the SD and HD and you really care, my guess is you probably don't want to keep the SD version anyway. So just go ahead and get rid of it. I wonder if you could set up a Hazel rule to do that.
1: I, bet I you think could. you could. I think you could. But you could.
0: All right. So homework assignment for somebody. Just figure that out and email it to us, and we'll we'll stick it in the follow-up.
1: Although I'm not sure I'd want to give Hazel the ability to start deleting media for me.
0: you got to be real brave.
1: How many movies do you own? see Hazel, to me, is something where you're using a lot of files. I'm not going to be deleting that many movies. I I think by hand wouldn't be the end of the world. Although you could maybe use Hazel to find the suspected movies and move them to a folder for you. So you could just look through that folder and say, okay, yeah, these all go. That would be pretty yeah. smart. Okay, um, let's talk about our next sponsor, Hover.
0: Yeah, we want to welcome Hover as a new sponsor to Mac Power Users. And as you're spring cleaning your Mac and your life and all of that stuff, it's probably a good time to spring clean your domain names as well. And I I have moved every single one of my domain names to Hover. And it started because I wasn't really thrilled with one of my other domain name companies that shall not be named. And I started hearing... People talk about Hover, and I thought, how different could it be? You know, One domain registrar, they're they're all the same. They've all got all this garbage on their page. They all try to upsell you for everything. But people were talking about Hover like it was something that was really new. So I said, okay, I'm going to move my stuff to Hover. So I, I did this, David. I don't remember. It was either Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve. I don't remember. It was a holiday for sure. And I went to move my domain name from other company to Hover, And the process was so simple. I went to hover, I initiated the transfer, and it was flawless, almost flawless. We'll talk about that in a minute. But some of my domain names transferred without any problem. Hover gave me a little status bar that showed me, walked me exactly through the process of how to unlock the domain name, exactly what I needed to do, a visual guide on the registrar of how to make sure my domain name went through without any trouble, And then it gave me a little status indicator telling me exactly where it was in the process and when I could anticipate this being completed. And then the domain registrar, who shall not be named, blocked my transfer for no reason whatsoever. So this guy named Mike from Hover Support contacted me on the holiday. He was so nice, or maybe I called him, I don't remember, but he picked up the phone on the first ring. He was friendly, he was knowledgeable. He understood the problem, he took ownership of it, and he fixed it. And he even called me back the next couple of days to tell me, we understand, we're aware, we're working on it, we're not going to let you down, we're going to make sure that this process works smoothly. This wasn't Hover's fault. Hover didn't do anything. It was all the other guys who had stalled the process, and there were a lot of blog posts about unnamed domain registrar doing this. And then he said, if you've got anything else you want to transfer, you can just give me their names and I'll do it all for you. You don't have to worry about it. They call that their concierge service. So if you've got a bunch of domains you want to transfer, they'll do it for you. So I could not have been more pleased with my service from Hover. Thank you, Mike, for that. And thank you, Hover, for everything.
1: You know, I think that you know, because I, I posted on it. I was on GoDaddy. The guy shot the elephant. and I Okay, said, I know, wasn't
0: going to go there, but you well, just
1: went there. I'm like, I'm done with these guys. And this was way before the new year, but there was kind of like this over to over to Hover. And I found out about Hover, and I went to their website. And what amazed me was there's no upsell, you know, and I'm not just blaming GoDaddy. But, you know, a lot of these, these domain services uh, focus on these upsells where you go in and it's like, it's almost like a game the way they make it. They move the yes and the no boxes and they highlight different ones. It's like it it really is like running the gauntlet to get through and just purchase a domain name without adding, you know, 17 dollars worth of extra services that you don't need. And right. Hover makes it really simple. Uh I think they do a great job. Like you, they helped me uh and I I wasn't like saying who I am or what podcast I'm from or whatever. I just mm-hmm. signed up as a customer and they were really helpful to me. Um, I have a bunch of domains I've purchased over the years. I can't help myself. Every time I think of something, I buy another domain. So I think I've got like 10 or 15 of them now. And I got them all transferred over, no problem. And, you know, for most of us, I feel like I'm not a web expert at any stretch of the imagination. It's a little like magic to me. I'm a little always nervous, you know, moving a domain like Max Sparky, where I've got, you know, a dedicated readership and people, you know, want that site to work. You're a little freaked out about moving because you don't want things to go wrong. These guys made sure everything happened seamlessly. And I'm a I'm a big fan of Hover, and I'm really happy that they decided to sponsor our show and we can share the good news with our listeners.
0: So a couple of things I want to mention about Hover in, in terms of deals. Uh, first off, if you click the link on our website or you use the coupon code MACPOWERUSERS, all one word, you can save 10% on anything that you either transfer into them. Most domain transfers are going to be 10 bucks for the first year, so that's a great deal. And you'll save 10% on top of anything using our coupon code or using the link on our website. Secondly, a lot of people say, you know, my domain still has another year or so on it, or I've still got a ways to go. I'm just going to transfer them over as, as they come up. And I thought that initially too, but I was so fed up with my other registrar. I just wanted to get away from them. So what Hover does is they don't just transfer your domain and restart your year as though, you know, let's say you had six months left on your old domain registrar and restart you. They give you a whole year. So you can transfer all your stuff to Hover now. And not lose any time. How cool is that?
1: Yeah. And if you've yeah. got a bunch of stuff you bought you don't want, they've got a service to kind of like buy them back from you. If you're looking for something special, they'll help you get that. It's a great service, um, very yeah. easy to use, and just, I think, really great people.
0: Yeah. So you can find more information on our website. Click the link to hover and save 10% or use coupon code users. and we want to thank them for their sponsorship of our show
1: and please do make sure you look at it through our link so that helps us uh, show them that our that our listeners love hover as well. Yeah.
0: All right, moving moving back on to spring cleaning. Uh I stuck this in the outline. We talked about it a little bit and you're not real hot on the idea, but I mentioned removing unused localizations.
1: Yeah, just be careful.
0: Yeah. There are um there are a couple of tools that will do it. You need to make very sure that you read the instructions on these because there are some there are some tools that if you remove certain localization files, they won't work. A lot of the Adobe applications are notorious for this. You just want to make sure that you do your research. One of the things I tell you I would never do, there are some tools that will strip out um, the universal binaries from apps as a way to save space. That just sounds like it's asking for trouble. Yeah, see.
1: that was a bigger deal you know, back when we still had apps that needed universal binaries. I mean, that was back when you had the uh, the the old chips and the intel chips and that's less of a problem now frankly as you move into the more modern uh, Mac OS ten operating systems and frankly my advice on on dealing with localizations and that those types of uh disk storage is you're probably better off buying a bigger hard drive if, if it's come to that um I, I just would look at other solutions
0: you're not going to save much space here
1: yeah and it's yeah. it's going to be, you could cause a lot more trouble than you expect. All right.
0: The other area where you can save some space, it's not as big of a deal now as it was in previous versions of the OS. Because now what I think happens is the uh, the OS will ship with minimal printer drivers and then download drivers as you need them. But what used to occur is when you installed the OS, and especially if you're running an older version of the OS, you may find that you have gigabytes upon gigabytes of printer drivers because what would happen is the OS would ship with a slew of different printer drivers so that it can anticipate every potential printer that you might use and that it would have the driver for it so that you wouldn't have to go out and download it or get it from the manufacturer's website or you know, install the CD that came with it or something like that. I think so this you is, might find that. Big yeah, a I think this
1: is really an interesting issue because it shows there must have been a raging debate in Apple about this because for the longest time when you got a new Mac it had a ton of printer drivers on it. You know, just about everything that was shipping and had shipped the last several years was installed already as a printer driver. And for users, they loved it, especially users who don't listen to shows like Mac Power Users and all they want to do is they get a shiny new Mac and they want to plug in a printer and plus print and not have to understand anything about drivers or, or support. Okay, so for a long time, that was the case. And Apple didn't have a problem with that, because generally, they ship Macs with big enough hard drives that adding 10 gigabytes of printer drivers didn't really matter to the bottom line. As soon as we got these SSD Macs, they changed that behavior. And I think it was I think it was Snow Leopard where they bragged about how much they reduced the size of the operating system. And these are the kind of decisions they made where they said, okay, we are smart enough now where we don't have to give you every printer driver under the sun. But, you know, just like you said, the basics. And then we're going to figure out what you have. We're going to download and install the appropriate driver for whatever you have. And there's a couple benefits to that. It allows you to have the most recent driver because you're getting it at the time. And in fact, Software Update now even looks at your printer driver to see if there's an updated one available, which never would have happened before. But the downside is people who want that plug-and-play experience don't get it. Now you might have a situation where you get a new computer and you've got to wait for it to install the driver. I think they've made it pretty painless. I think it's kind of fascinating to see you know, to why they would do that. And it is definitely less convenient than just plugging it in and going. So. I don't know. I I just find this interesting uh, uh, from the perspective of someone who follows Apple when they make a decision like that, because it definitely changes the user experience. And that's something they're always very obsessive about. Right.
0: In the age of high-speed Internet, where most people have a high-speed Internet connection out, does it really matter that you have to wait two minutes for it to download something, usually less?
1: No, and I'm pretty sure that's why they ultimately decided to go that direction. But it is still interesting. I mean, where else can they make decisions like that in the operating system? I suspect you're going to see as we go in the future that's going to be increasingly the case.
0: And we've already seen it a little bit. Like you mentioned, you know, when you had the CD version of iLife, it would just install all of those support files. Now it prompts you to download them.
1: Yeah, with the Mac App Store version. So you're seeing those
0: kind of changes. Yeah,
1: exactly. So you get GarageBand. There's the version of GarageBand you install, uh, and then there's the version of GarageBand expanded that you get when you start using it. Right. I think we'll continue to see that. I guess the question really underlying this is, you know, how long are we going to be dealing with small SSD drives? And as they get bigger, are we going to care anymore? I mean, will our spring cleaning show have all this hard drive advice in five years? And I suspect it probably won't.
0: But while we're still... Dealing with limited hard drive capacity, one of the ways that you can deal with that is to move to network-attached storage or to uh, external storage. One of the things that I've done for this is I've moved a lot of my data that I don't need all the time uh, over to my Drobo. In my case, I've got a Drobo FS, which is connected to my network, and I can access all of the data on my Mac Mini. I can access it all on my MacBook Air, obviously, so long as I'm connected to my local network. But... That's worked very well for me. You know, for example, that Mac mini that's getting the 60 gigabyte SSD drive, it doesn't have an iTunes library. It doesn't have an iPhoto library. Because that mini sits at my house, all of that data is on the Drobo. Yeah. And has the benefits of, you know, of course, Drobo has the benefits of, you know, having their redundant, you know, RAID-ish type solution where if you have OneDrive fail, um, that's not a catastrophic failure. But a network attached storage device, as long as it's properly backed up, is going to give you some of the benefits of being able to move this stuff off site. Like, you know, we make very large podcast episodes every week. I only keep one week worth on my machine. Everything else gets archived off to the Drobo because, you know, we could easily have five to ten gigs worth of podcasting files a week on a machine.
1: Yeah. And so are we really cleaning, though, at that point? Are we just moving stuff around? I don't know. I guess that's putting a shed in your backyard.
0: I guess it is. It's a pretty shed. It's a compact shed.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about things other than dealing with, you know, big files on our hard drives as part of your spring cleaning. Okay. What about physically cleaning your computer?
0: I think that's a good thing because people are gross.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so you've got the keyboard, right? That's usually gets filthy pretty quick. Uh, um, What do you use to clean your keyboard?
0: Well, let me tell you what I use, and then let me tell you some other experiences I've had. Um, I use an iSkin uh, keyboard cover, and there are a couple of other manufacturers that make one. I just happen to like iSkin. They come in a variety of colors. I just picked the clear one because I'm, you know, not all that creative. And it lays on top of my keyboard, and it muffles the sound a little bit because I'm a little bit of a loud typist. But it also has the benefit of protecting my keyboard um, from anything that may be on my fingers. So if I have condensation, if I'm drinking water or something, and I have condensation on my fingers. It's going to keep that from going into the keyboard. It's going to protect my keyboard from, like, you know, some minor spills if I have a little oops moment. And um, it's going to keep the general cruft out of my keyboard. So I can just lift this thing off, you know, wash it good with with soap and water, let it air dry, and I'm good to go. So I I do that every every so often to keep my keyboard nice and clean. The I, other thing I found. I've oh, never used
1: one of those. I mean, I, see I, they're, I they're really kind, like it. They're kind of interesting. They make some like with uh, imprints on them for like the aperture keys or final cut. That's kind of neat, but I don't know. I just use this keyboard.
0: I, I use the, I, I forget that it's on my key. I've, I've used them for years. I've had them ever since I was in law school. And I use them initially to muffle sound and to protect it a little bit. But after a while, you just you just forget it's there. So you might want to pick one up and try it. I, I use it mainly for the protection that it affords my Mac, not so much because I'm being courteous to others by any means, because I really couldn't care less. Um,
1: I, but I use these big, you know, mechanical keyboards generally. and
0: Oh, when I'm at home, yeah. yeah.
1: So what I do is uh, to clean the keyboard on either my MacBook or my home computers. I turn it off, obviously unplug it where I can. And I do, um, use an alcohol. I clean, I clear product. I K L E A R. They make these little wipes and the people, at the Apple store were the ones that turned me onto these where you just kind of wipe it down and it, it gets some of the dirt off the keys because I'm using it all the time. And I use the same product on my Mac. I, it, this I clear stuff is pretty great. Um, you can get it at the, at the Apple store. Every year they're at Macworld, and they sell these big bottles of it. I bought a big bottle of it, I don't know, two or three years ago, and I'm not even halfway through it. I mean, stuff will last you forever. And I just right. wipe down my screen on my iMac or my screen on my my MacBook or even the aluminum with this iClear product, and it seems to do a pretty good job.
0: Right. I'm not. It, you said it was alcohol-based. I'm not sure if it is or not. I don't know if you're getting any antibacterial kind of effect out of it or not, but I know it is safe for, for the surface because it's specifically made for screens and for um, iPhone, iPad, Mac screens, displays and things like that.
1: Yeah. I don't know what's in it. I'm here. I'm looking at the bottle right now. It says for displays, acrylic glass and aluminum surfaces. Right. But uh, it, it it does evaporate pretty quickly.
0: Right. The other thing that I've used um, on, on, um, other keyboards, especially the, uh, cause keyboards can get really nasty. Sometimes you just have to tip them over and, you know, jiggle them and just pat all that stuff out. Um, I've also found that those, um, you know what they're, they're like the Lysol disinfecting wipes.
1: Yeah.
0: You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you use them in your kitchen or around the house. They make some, they've got the purple caps, um, that have a little bit of a, a texture to them. And my dad's, I was, I was, a. Uh, re reinstalling his os from scratch at some point and so i just had him bring his mac over to my house and he brought this keyboard it was so disgusting i didn't even want to touch it i mean this thing is like five years old and it obviously never had anything done to it so i you know dunked that thing over and started tapping it and blew it out with the with a can of compressed air and then i got one of these lysol wipes and um, made sure that it wasn't too damp because obviously you don't want to get any liquid in there. And it had just enough of a rough surface that it really cleaned the keys. That thing looked brand new when I was done with it. He, In fact, he asked me, he said, did you go buy a new keyboard for this? And I said, yes, your old one was so disgusting. You owe me 60 bucks.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. The, um, uh, I never rem- got paid. Remember the before the aluminum keyboards, they had this kind of plastic Mac keyboard. And uh-huh. you could see a lot of the the stuff in it it was really kind of a mess and i remember i just looked it up cult of mac did an article in 2008 about washing that in a dishwasher
0: yeah don't do that
1: i I don't think i'd recommend it but i'm gonna put the link in because i think it's so fascinating they they did did a good job and cleaned a keyboard in the dishwasher but uh i'm not sure i would have the guts to do do that. that i don't think i could do that with my keyboards that i love
0: I think I saw Veronica Belmont did a video version of that to see if it worked. Yeah. It did
1: not. If right, her keyboard.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, she also did quite a bit to her keyboard before to mess it up before she cleaned it. So it could have been whatever she did to it before. The, yeah. Yeah, whatever.
1: But cleaning the uh, display is just as important. And I use this clear product for that as well. I don't spray it on the display because I was worried that, mm-mm. you know, especially on the um, on the laptop that the – the liquid is going to go down inside the electronics somehow, but you know everything is turned off. Uh, I spray the liquid on a on a little cloth, and I then use the cloth to wipe the screen, and it does a great job. You know, the MacBook Air is not a glass screen MacBook. Um, on the the standard MacBooks and MacBook Pros, they have a glass screen. It may be easier to do that, uh, and I don't do it that often. I just do it when I notice it's dirty.
0: Mm-hmm. What about uh? Do you ever blow anything out with compressed air?
1: No, I don't. I mean, I used to do that, um, and I guess I could continue to do it with the keyboards I use these days. Uh, I think with these new aluminum keyboards, it doesn't really make much sense. And if I do use compressor, you have to be really careful um, the way you hold it. I mean, sometimes you can blow actually liquid into the machine that way. So just be careful that you know what you're doing. It's not as big of a deal. That was more of a kind of a PC thing when you had a big box full of stuff.
0: That had a lot of dust. There's not. A, there's yeah. not a whole lot of places for dust to accumulate.
1: Well, there could be a dust and
0: a Mac in, Pro, especially.
1: Well, there could be a bunch probably of dust could. inside my iMac. I don't know. I would never get to it to find out. But You'd you know, when I run my fingers off. along the vents on the bottom, there's never any. It doesn't feel as if there's any accumulation of dust. So I think I'm pretty okay there, and I think most people are.
0: The last thing we can talk about, kind of in the context of spring cleaning, is just some general maintenance to your machine. Now we had a whole episode on Mac maintenance. I think that was episode. 49. But this could be an opportunity to catch up with some of your general maintenance if you haven't done it. And we've talked about things like cleaning the caches with tools like Onyx and Cocktail. That's one of those things though you want to be careful of because doing it occasionally for maintenance is not a bad thing, but it's it's one of those things that you don't want to do it all the time.
1: Yeah. Well, caches serve a purpose on your on your Mac. The point is that they take frequently used data. And they keep it locally so you can access it very quickly. The most common example is the web. You know, when you have little graphics that show up on web pages that you go to frequently, it's going to remember those and just save them in storage so it doesn't have to re-download them every time it looks at them. And it makes the web feel a lot snappier to you. Well, you know, that's what a cache is. And there are caches for your fonts, your most frequently used fonts. There are caches for graphics. There's caches for your browser. There's a bunch of them. And if you're interested in that stuff, definitely go back and listen to Show 49, where we talk about the tools that go through and give you the ability to clear out those caches. And once in a while, it's not a bad idea. I mean, it's a great troubleshooting step, certainly, if you have font problems. One of the first things I would tell people to do is blow out their font cache, and like nine times out of ten, that fixes it, and they think I'm brilliant. And it's just <laughs> you know a cache problem. Uh, But, you know, doing it just for the heck of it, it will slow your computer down for a while, because then it's going to have to rebuild that cache, it's going to have to re-download each of those graphics. And, um, you know, you don't necessarily want to do that. But it's not a bad spring cleaning idea. If you haven't, if you haven't cleared out your caches in a year or two, maybe it's not a bad idea.
0: Right the other thing you probably should do more often than once a year, but if you haven't, now's a good time to do it, um, is you should do things like repairing your disc with disc utility. Uh, HSF Plus particular is, is prone to directory corruption. It may not happen now. It may not happen for years, but it's a good idea that when little bits of corruption pop up, that you want to get them fixed with disk utility before they turn into a bigger problem because your hard drive can fail in a couple of ways. One way is that you can have a physical failure of the hard drive. And another way is that you can have corruption in the directory structure of the hard drive, which makes it look like all your data is gone, but in fact your data tree is actually just corrupted to the point that it can't be read. So running disk utility on your boot drive to verify the data integrity and to fix any minor corruption as it comes up from time to time can be a good thing to keep, you know, to make sure that you don't have a catastrophic failure down the line.
1: Yeah, and those those types of small errors kind of grow on themselves. So routinely running through that and doing it, and by routinely, I mean maybe once every six months, you can kind of cut it off at the pass. And to do that, you need to boot from a separate drive. So whether you're on an older Mac, you use your DVD installer or your thumb drive on your newer MacBook Airs or however you do it, because it's going to be working on your your root disk and you can't boot from it to do that. And can you
0: do it from the recovery partition now, if you've got Lion installed?
1: That is a good can. question, for which I do not know the answer. It would make sense that you could, though, because it is, in essence, a separate disk. And I'd have to experiment on that. But
0: the and point I believe is, that you can now check, but perhaps not repair from your boot drive now. Yeah. But I still think it's a good measure to do it from a separate drive.
1: And so it's not that difficult. Go into disk utility, and it's right there. Right. And uh,
0: – and I don't. I don't even hit the verify button. I just hit the res- repair button because it will verify first and repair if it needs to. So. Yeah,
1: not a bad uh, idea. The other,
0: yeah. the other thing that I suggest people do really once a month or so is to calibrate their batteries. I just wrote a piece about this on my on my blog about calibrating batteries in the context of the iPad. I had an issue with my iPad where you know when you first get your iPad it comes at about eighty percent charged or so. And the first time that I used my iPad, I noticed that it was really running the battery down faster than it should. Well, it's of course because the iPad battery wasn't calibrated properly. And after I'd run it down to empty the first time and recharged it, all was well. And my iPad's now functioning beautifully and the battery life is exactly where it should be. But these batteries, although they're much better now than they used to be, still need to be calibrated regularly. And I really think this is something that you should do once a month. But again, if you haven't done it in a while, It's something to do. So basically, to calibrate your battery, it's pretty simple. What you want to do is you want to run your machine, whether it's your Mac, your iPad, your iPhone, whatever, run it all the way down to the point that it turns itself off because it has no more power. If you have a Mac, it will put itself to sleep. And at that point, you probably want to let it run a little bit longer until it actually turns off. And then just plug it in and let it charge all the way up. And you're done.
1: Yeah, Kill it and recharge it. That's about it. That hard. Not a bad idea. Okay, so calibrate your battery. And I think you've done some spring cleaning at this point. Hey, I want to talk about the last sponsor, 1Password. Uh, 1Password is my app that I use to track all of my passwords and basically stay secure with my internet experience. Uh, it really solves the problem that we were all facing for years of how do we accurately and consistently create excellent passwords, and then be able to access them later. Um, I remember so many people, myself included, that had these layers of passwords in their head that they would keep. I used to have three. There was like the really basic one, the kind of secure one, and what I considered to be the real secure one, which made no sense because if I used any one of those passwords in more than one place and someone got that password there, then they would in essence be able to log into anywhere else that I'd use the same password and uh, 1Password solves that problem. It creates truly unique passwords for you right in the browser or right in the app, if you want to do it in the app. And then it applies them to the websites that you most frequently use. Uh, not only does it help you create them, it remembers them for you. And because they've got this app on every platform that you can think of, it's on the Mac, the PC, um, Android, and all the iOS devices, it shares that information back and forth with a really secure Dropbox sync. And You've got great passwords and the ability to access everything. It kind of cheats, you know, because you always look at uh, security being the compromise between convenience and actual security. Well, this gives you both actual security and convenience. It's just a great app. I love it.
0: Yeah. So since we're in spring cleaning mode, you know, there's some things you can do to spring clean with your passwords as well. Now, obviously, the first thing you should be doing is if you're not using one password to create strong, secure, random passwords for every site and have every password be different across all of your sites, that should be your first step. But let's say you are, um, or maybe you're kind of along that process. Well, what can you do to kind of spring clean your passwords and clean things like that up? Well, one thing that you can do is maybe it's time to change your master password. We, all have our master password that is the key to everything in 1Password, it's a good idea to change that master password regularly from time to time. And master, uh, master passwords should be uh, something that's good for you to remember, but it's going to be very hard for people to guess. It should be a combination of letters and numbers, and it should be a decent length. And 1Password has tips on their website about creating a strong master password.
1: You know, Someone just also, wrote me about that lately, and they asked if I change it. You know, I just recently changed it, and you can use spaces. There's a lot of things you can do in that that you might not think about, right?
0: You should also go into 1Password, and did you know, David, that you can sort your logins if you view them all in, a, in the list mode? You can sort your logins by password strength. So if it's green and long, you've got a nice long password. But if it's red and really short, you've got a, a really insecure password that probably needs some beefing up. Um, so you can specifically pay attention to those and look and see what passwords you probably need to go back in and change because they're not very secure.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: The other thing you can do within one password is you can actually search by password. So you know how you said you used to have those three passwords that you used all the time? It's possible that you might still have some sites out there lingering that are using those passwords that you've forgotten to change. Maybe they're sites you don't use anymore. Maybe they're sites you've forgotten about. But still, if they get compromised, that password may be out there across multiple sites still. So you can search by password to see where you're using the same password across multiple sites and go ahead and fix that. Maybe you just need to delete that account, change the password and delete the account and deregister the service. I'd go ahead and change the password anyway, just because you never know whether these people actually delete your account or not. But you know where you can do some cleanup. And then... You can start going through 1Password. We talked last week about tagging your passwords. You can change your critical passwords regularly as you need to. But go through all of your passwords and, you know, get rid of the ones you don't need for services you no longer use. Go ahead and delete those accounts on those specific services. And, you know, consider adding some tags. Maybe tag them by security level. Tag them by category and just clean up your passwords a little bit. A lot of spring cleaning you can do within there as well.
1: Yeah, this is your chance to go through and make sure that you truly are being secure with your data on the Internet, which I think is an increasingly important thing to do. Uh, This app solves all of those problems for you. You can get it at the Mac App Store for your Mac for $49.99. You can get from the website a Mac and Windows bundle. So if you're on Windows and Mac, you may want to do that. It's $69.99. They have an iOS Pro version that gets you both on the iPad and the iPhone for $14.99. Or you can get it an individual version for the iPad or iPhone for $9.99. And uh, I truly thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I think they're an excellent company and couldn't recommend them more strongly if you don't have a good password system already in place.
0: Yeah. And, hey, don't forget that if you click the link on our website, you can save 20% off of anything you buy off of their website, too. Yeah,
1: that's pretty nice. Yeah.
0: All right. So we've got some feedback we can go through.
1: Yeah. So uh, our Google show continues to get a lot of feedback. And it's very interesting because I thought, you know, was I overreacting and even doing that show? And it seems like a lot of people were concerned about it because we've heard a lot uh, from people asking questions. Uh, I was lamenting the fact that we couldn't really replace Google Reader. At least at this point, I I wasn't aware of a good solution. And a lot of people wrote in with ideas. Um, We heard from Will, and um, he talked about a company called NetVibes that is uh, doing an iOS app that has got some feed reader aggregation stuff going on um, there. And I looked at it, it looks interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I just don't know that I've seen anything yet. That's going to work better than my RSS feeds. And I guess that really raises another question is do, should I be looking at RSS feeds at all? Because um, that seems, you know, to a lot, it can be coming efficient. Uh, if you get too many of them, you waste a lot of time every day going through them. I'm pretty specific about what I follow. And I'm pretty brutal about cutting feeds. <laughs> but the um, but I know people who, like we we're at Macworld, I was talking to a friend of ours who had in his reader, he said he had like 2,000 unread articles. And I said, well, you just have too mm. many feeds. You know, you got to like yeah. cut that out. Yeah.
0: We also heard from Richard about a product called uh, Takeout. And, you know, we talked about another application called Cloud Pull, which would help you download some of your data. Uh, But Takeout is a set of products which will allow you to escape from Google as easily as possible, which is their tagline. So it allows you to download all of your data from Google in portable and open formats, so it's easily uh, importable into other services. And uh, I didn't know this, but Richard says that, ironically, these types of products are sponsored by Google in some cases – uh, and that they're very big on the data liberation front, which surprises to me. But if so, you know, good on them. So you might want to check out Takeout. And we will uh, put it at dataliberation.org slash takeout hyphen products. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty, uh, <laughs> that's pretty direct, data liberation.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, I heard from Scott, and I've been kind of hinting at lately my use of byword and simple note and all the apps I'm using and people are writing in fact I did a screencast maybe I should link that on byword because when they came out with the new iOS version I was very excited about it um, and they were saying so are you not using simple note anymore and I haven't really explained it I do want to write a post on it at some point but I've been doing two things at once number one is I look at byword as kind of the place that I manage the hot documents the stuff I'm really working on right now because it's got that great iCloud sync but I still look at Um, simple note or alternatively notesy with a Dropbox sync as a way to kind of keep the, the large list of text files that I want access to, but I don't work on necessarily every day. I've got like 500 text files that I'm using that way. Currently I'm experimenting with doing this just with notesy and Dropbox and not simple note. I do see as we go uh, to record the show that simple note has a new update out. I want to take a look at that too. So I haven't really decided exactly where that bank of text goes, but I'm not using an iCloud-based sync system to do 500 notes. I don't think that's really what iCloud was made for. No. So I'll keep you posted on that one. Watch, Go to maxbarkey.com, and eventually you'll see an article about it.
0: I'm, I'm loving ByWord and the Cloud Sync.
1: Oh, isn't it great? It's wonderful. Anyway. Okay, let's uh, see. How do you contact us?
0: Uh, well, you can find links to everything that we talked about in this show over at www.macpowerusers.com or at 5 slash MPU.
1: You can also send us feedback to feedback at MacPowerUsers.
0: Um, or we're on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd and David is at MacSparky.
1: Yes. And uh, we love the iTunes comments. Keep them coming. It helps people find us. I just met somebody at the ABA Tech Show, who discovered us through an iTunes search, which means that all those comments that people did, it worked. So thank you, everybody, who has given us such generous comments.
0: Yeah, and it makes my day to go into iTunes and and check out the comments that our wonderful listeners have left for us. So it it really does help if you leave comments for your favorite podcasts, leave comments for your favorite apps. uh, That that all helps as well. Uh, And thank you to our sponsors, 1Password, Hover, and daisy disc for sponsoring the podcast we really appreciate that we wouldn't be able to do this without them especially with our stepped up production schedule and uh next episode we're back to a workflow right
1: yeah we are uh, we've got a couple people we're talking to right now and it's not clear exactly what order we're going to do them in so i'm not going to announce but next week you're going to find a fresh new workflow show in the back how we just feed so stay tuned
0: all right till then